and welcome back to Stripped Bear, a podcast where two students at Bowdoin College lament, laugh, and learn about diverse experiences at our predominantly white institution. I am your host, Esther Park, and today we have two wonderful guests from the senior class, Anam Shah and Michelle Cosme. Um, they're friends of mine, and I'm really grateful to have them finally on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. Um, could you please introduce yourselves briefly, names, pronouns, hometowns, majors, and anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Yes, of course. First, Esther, I just want to say you have a perfect podcast voice. Like, <laughs> it's very calming. I love it. Um, hello, everybody. My name's Anam. Um, that's how I anglicize my name. It's traditionally pronounced as Anam. Um, I am a senior. I am from Kent Island, Maryland. I am a computer science and Asian studies double major. I use she, her, hers. I think that's everything. Yeah. Great. Well, nice to meet everybody <laughs> or hear everybody. I don't know. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle Cosme. I am from Islamabad, Pakistan, and I am an, I am an English major and history minor. And... Thanks so much for having us on the podcast, Esther. Um, first of all, thank you so much for recording with me during Ramadan. I know some people are totally fine with carrying on with their days um, during Ramadans. I know some people really like to take it easy. So I appreciate your time today. Um, so with Anam and Michelle, we're going to talk about being Muslim, um, Desi women, um, going to a PWI, specifically Bowdoin. Okay, we'll just get started the current topic, I guess. What is it like to have Ramadan in the middle of a semester, especially at a school like Bowdoin, where not a lot of people are sharing that experience with you? Um, do you find yourself altering your lifestyle and routine dramatically, or do you kind of go along and make small changes? Yeah, so this is going to be our third year of Ramadan on campus. Obviously last year, all of us were back home um, because of the pandemic. But um, I don't usually, I have had this thing where I don't usually fast for the entirety of Ramadan, um, but I did do it last time because I was home and I, you know, had the resources available to me. Mm -hmm. um, on campus for the past three years, I usually will do like two weeks or, you know, like on and off. Um, but this year I'm trying to be better and fast throughout the month. Um, and, you know, it's it's obviously hard because it's like a 17, 16 hour, hour fast. Uh, mm -hmm. And you're not, you don't have the communal aspect of being with your family and waking up. I live um, in a quad with two non-Muslim roommates. So for me, like waking up at Sari, which is the dawn meal is, it's, you wake up and you're like, wow, this is really sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've been, been committing to it so far. And I don't, I don't find myself altering my routine too much. I kind of have to wake up for class. You know, it's just necessity at that point. Um, but I do take naps. When that 6 p.m. time hits, I'm like, all right, time for an hour nap. And then you wake up at 7, it's only 30 minutes left. Mm -hmm. But yeah, not, not like drastic changes in my day-to-day -day routine. Yeah, um, I think I have a little bit of a different experience from Michelle. Um, besides like last Ramadan, it was just so nice. Cause like, not that the pandemic is nice. It just Ramadan was nice during the pandemic. Cause uh -huh. a, I was like with my mom and my little brother and we fasted the whole time and it kind of flew by. Like there wasn't much difficulty. 
And I think we're only five or six days into Ramadan right now. And I'm kind of feeling a little bit of a difficulty. Um, I think the hard part for me is like getting enough sleep. And then also when you don't eat for like the amount of hours, like Michelle said, your stomach kind of shrinks. So like you don't have, first of all, eating at 3.30 or like <laughs> four in the morning, I don't, like, I don't have the desire to eat then. So I was already like trying to make myself eat. And then one, once iftar, which is like the meal where you break your fast, once that meal comes, it's kind of hard for me to eat then too. Cause like, there's not like your stomach eventually, like it starts shrinking. Um, so I think that's the hard thing, like keeping your body nourished and then also keeping a good sleep schedule because like you go, you have to wake up like every day at 3.30 and every every like morning it becomes earlier and earlier and every um, dinner becomes later and later. So our fast, you know, get longer and longer. Um, but like overall, like I don't think it's been super bad. I think that I've also been super lucky with having a, so I have five roommates. One of my roommates is Muslim and he's been, he was on your podcast, Nirhan. Um, but it's also been really cool because two of my non-Muslim roommates have been fasting with us too, almost every single day. So like every morning at like 3.30, I wake up and I'm not alone. I'm sorry, Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, I'm so sorry. But like I wake up with a community and honestly, I haven't had that even with my own family in so long. So I don't know. I'm kind of sad because I feel like I'm not going to have a Ramadan like this in, like, in a long time, you know, like next year I'm going to be off and alone by myself exploring a new city. So it is hard and always check on your friends during Ramadan if you know they are fasting. But I don't know. I wasn't expecting to have this communal aspect during Ramadan while fasting at Bowdoin and I have it and I'm really I feel very loved by it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was really long-winded. No, that, that was beautiful. Um, yeah, like I grew up in Dubai, so I a yeah. lot of my bestest friends were South Asian, Middle Eastern, and Muslim women. Um, and I remember like my friends told me like the biggest struggle that they had was like sleep, like especially when we were like taking AP exams and that kind of stuff, which I was like surprised to learn about. I was like, that's something that probably people wouldn't think about or, or realize. Um, I'm also curious with being on the dining plan, how do you yeah. manage eating at those hours when um, dining hall is not open 24-7? Okay, so Michelle and I have a bit of a different experience. I'm fortunate enough to have a kitchen, uh-huh. um, which is very nice. And like, bef- like, I think weekly, not even weekly, we've gone like daily to go get new stuff, but like we go to the grocery store and stock up and just cook our own food. But I know that when I was a first year and like a sophomore and like Michelle now, it was very hard because like when I lived in a first year brick, I didn't really have access or easy access to a kitchen. And you can go to 30 college and cook. And first year and sophomore year, it was fun because we had a lot more like Muslim community like on campus but now it's more like oh you can go to 30 college you can cook like eggs and bread that's provided by dining because they're stocking up 30 college for us the cereal like any bagels like that stuff it's just very dry food Uh so if you don't have access to a kitchen which a lot of the underclassmen on this campus don't have Mm -hmm. it's kind of a shitty wait can I cuss yeah 
No, wait, I I shouldn't be cussing as Ramadan. It's oh, kind okay. of a, a yes, bad experience. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of a hard experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a kitchen and I usually will eat leftovers from dining um for my dawn meal. Uh iftari, which is the evening meal is easier because you can just go to dinner and have uh-huh. all the all the options available to you. Yeah. But sari is definitely the hardest part in having to fit. Even like it's just such a chore to have to figure out what yeah. you're going to eat because at home food is given to me i don't have to be independent yeah. and figure it out myself yeah. uh and like i said before the communal aspect is completely erased and the familial aspect is is, is erased yeah. so it makes it a lot harder but i think for all of that it makes it a lot more rewarding too like i feel yeah. good that i'm that i'm doing this i'm doing this for myself i'm not doing it because of any pressure i'm doing it because of my religion my spirituality yeah um so yeah, there's there's pros and cons to it, but you just if I mean if I'm gonna live in America, I have to get to you. I have to get used yeah. to it. So yeah. 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 Well, something that a lot of my friends used to tell me is like they always have to have dates when they break their fast. Like, have you had to let go of some things that you would like normally do um, if you're with your family, or do you try to keep some of those like traditions or preferences with you? Um. So I'm in the MSA, like the Muslim Student Association board, right? And we made these care packages and we still, we still definitely didn't give like enough, but we tried to give as much as we could. We like tried to get like just overall snacks and like stuff for like people who are fasting, but then we also tried to get them like dates. So I like went to Portland, I went to a bunch of different halal stores and it's like crazy to me because like I'm Pakistani, like, and I'm fasting from, and when I fast, it's within the cultural context of Pakistan, right? Mm-hmm. Or like a Desi context. I like know it's different culture from culture, but I didn't realize how different it was until I went to a halal store that wasn't like catered to brown people. It was catered more to like African uh, Muslims and Arab Muslims. And I was like, none of every time I asked them for something, they'd be like, I don't know what that is. And I was Damn. like, pain. You don't know what this is. <laughs> but it's the same thing. I didn't know what the stuff like they had that that was there. There are like some traditional foods that we won't get to eat, you know. Um, my mom sent me a care package, which is really kind with, with some dates, with some ruabza, which is like the syrup for a drink that we um, make for like the breakfast meal. But you're definitely giving up like the good food that your parents make for you you know because like we eat dining hall food almost every single day to be fasting and to eat it I mean I'm appreciative no matter what it just does like I wish like sometimes I wasn't eating traditional western food when Mm -hmm. I'm breaking fast okay um we'll touch on a topic that you briefly mentioned when you were introducing yourself but with names and um I, I use an anglicized name. I like Esther is not my birth name. My Korean name is Unsa and I've used the name Esther in English speaking setting since the first grade. So I feel like it's part of my identity. But like um Indian American comedian Hassan Minhaj, he has come on a lot of interviews and said like how people used to pronounce his name however they please, like Hassan Minaj, like Nicki Minaj, like and how he like made it a point to like correct people when they say their name wrong um and but that that was like a really long journey for him to get there to feel like he was important enough or like that the name was important enough to get right how do you guys feel about 
name pronunciations and all the social like things around that? My name is complicated even in Pakistan. So it's Mishal. Um, It's spelled M-I-S-H-A-L. And there's a, there's different variations of the name Mishal from Arabic. So it, there's Mishal, Mushal, uh, and then Mishal. And they all mean slightly different things, but are all, you know, coming from the broader sort of definition of light in Arabic. But yeah, so I've, I've, I've I mean, I guess I've been used to people mispronouncing my name since birth <laughs> um, or since I was conscious. Because um, people in Pakistan will say Mishal, a lot of the times, um, and I guess the spelling kind of lends itself to that pronunciation. And p- here people will say Michelle, uh, anything, I've heard everything, Mich- Mitchell, Michael. Um, I, I d- it doesn't bother me like it used to, um, but I have started correcting people. For example, if I'm on a Zoom call and people are, and now, uh, you know, Michelle will introduce herself and I make it a point to be like, hi, my name is Michelle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just so they like, recognize that that was not the right pronunciation yeah um but yeah I mean it's 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 hard right because you want people to be able to say it like you say it and your family says it but when people in Pakistan also say it wrong I Mm. I feel like I can't really critique Americans or, or like the West for saying it a certain way um and like I said I think the spelling kind of is where it gets a little murky for for my name um but it does come from Arabic and it means light so yeah that's like I didn't know that I didn't know well like I guess when I have mentioned because Mitchell's a very close friend of mine I wouldn't even call her a friend I would call her like more like family and when I do like tell my family about Mitchell they'll be like her name's Mitchell and I'm like yeah and they're like are you sure it's not Mitchell and I'm like no 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 (laughs) it's Mitchell um but being like born and raised in the U.S. like of course like anybody with an ethnic name that's can have different pronunciations or like so my name is Anam that's how it's pronounced traditionally and there's something about the intonation of like Anam that is like unnatural almost in a way for like English-speaking people so and I know a lot of people who have ethnic names feel this but they almost have to feel like from a young age, they have to compromise their own name for like the white man or like the white person's like own comfort, you know? And it's so sad that I saw my name for so long as an inconvenience to the point where like my mom and I would have arguments sometimes. Like I remember this one time we were sitting in the car and I was like, she was like, when they pronounced your name at whatever event it was, they said Anam. And it's Mm. like, that's not your name. And I'm like, but that's the way I like my name. But but I'm not sure if that's the way that I liked it rather than I'd like to not be like different. I don't want to make things already mm-hmm. more complicated for myself, you know? So when I came to college, I was like, None, no more of this. Like, I refuse to do this again. And somebody asked me what my name was and I said, Anam. And I was like, frick. <laughs> Or I'm, I'm trying to say, instead of the F word, I'm saying fork. So fork. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it again. And the difference between here and high school, I, I, I like lived in a predominantly like white town, way more white than Bowdoin. Some people are like confused because I'm like, oh no, this is more diverse than where I went to um, high school. Um, but I make it more of a point. I say my name is Anam. 
but it is traditionally pronounced as anam. Like I want it to be pronounced as anam. I'm still trying to find my like self there too, you know? So I really hope that when I move on to the next chapter of my life, I become more comfortable to be to say that my name is Anam because it means in Arabic like the precious gift from God and I like want to carry that, you know? Yeah. I think it's definitely an ongoing journey. I obviously come from a different cultural background, but um, I think East Asians are very known for having English names and not yeah. going by their ethnic names. Um, for me, because I am Christian and Esther is a name from the Bible, I feel like mm-hmm. it still means something to me. It's not just like a mm-hmm. random name that like my English teacher picked out for me. Like my yeah. parents and I sat down and like made this name together. And part of me is like also has that like thing that Esther Esther Park seems more respectable or like trustworthy to an American audience and like when I realized that I need to like do my resumes and my cover letters with my birth name because that's like what's on my all my papers I was like oh what if they like don't want to give me the job because I seem extremely foreign and that's something that we like obviously like um resonate with and like go through right it's like we shouldn't feel a lower sense of pride because our name is ethnic even for like African-American names like for like black names they face discrimination like within the job experience because of their names because they have these names that are typically like black names which is Mm -hmm. so messed up you know like oh this person sounds too black I don't want them to be working at my corporation or like in my like job and stuff it's so sad that like you can't get a break even with the way that you like refer to yourself it's a non like it's a never-ending like struggle you know Uh uh-huh Something that's so intimately tied to your sense of self. And it's just, yeah. it's hard. We'll move on to the next question, which is, you're both Pakistani women, but you come from very different backgrounds. Um, you guys have already started to touch on that. What was it like transitioning to Bowdoin? What do you remember being the biggest factor, a shock factor, if any? Yeah, so... I had only been to America once before coming to Bowdoin. I had never been to Maine, didn't even know it was the place, honestly. Um, I had spent a summer in Boston for summer school, and then that was the extent of my exposure to America. And so coming here to this, you know, (laughs) very, very white place um, Mm -hmm. from having grown up in Pakistan my entire life where yeah. everyone around me was Muslim, everyone around me was brown. There, it, it was a very homogenous community, even in terms of gender, like mostly I had women around me. Um, it was, yeah, it was very, very different. Um, and I don't remember, I didn't have too hard of a transition because I was able to find people like Anam, like bef- even before I came here. Um, Cause we like, Uh, (laughs) I hate us (laughs) we interacted on like group me before and we like knew each other so I I knew that I was coming into a place where I was going to have some people who understood my you know understood where I was coming from at least to some degree Mm -hmm. but the vast majority majority wouldn't and now that I actually think of it now that I'm thinking of the next phase of my life and going to grad school and stuff I'm 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 like how did I do that like how did I pack up my bag move across the world to Mm -hmm. this not to like a a city like New York or Boston, to a city like Brunswick, Maine. And 
I was fine at the time. Like I wasn't nervous. And now going on to grad school, I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to make, how am I going to make new friends? How am I going to navigate the different social scene? And I don't know if this is my, like, you know, my hindsight being like, let's look at it with the rose colored glasses. Uh Um, But I do remember it being not as hard as it, as it is for some people. And obviously the largest, largest part of that was because I was able to find roommates who were from different backgrounds who, you know, embraced my culture and I embraced theirs. And it was very, it was a very welcoming environment. I know that's not the case for, for several people. Um, I think I was very lucky and very blessed in that sense is that I was Mm -hmm. able to find my people and I've stuck with them throughout, like, those are still my best friends. Um, so it wasn't too hard because I had them to move me through and maneuver me through all the American things that I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, your, one of your first year roommates was Sophia, right? Yeah. Yeah, who's been on the podcast before too. So, <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say that my transition into Bowdoin was difficult. And I think like Michelle said, it really has to do with the fact that I didn't really have too much difficulty finding a community Mm-hmm. And because what makes a place comfortable are the, are the people, right? Like we yeah. don't, if you love Bowdoin, you don't love Bowdoin for the white institution. You love Bowdoin for the people that, like the friends that you've made here. Um, so the part of Maryland I'm from, although it's very white, if you were to drive 20 minutes away, it's super diverse. Mm. You know, it's just like a weird pocket of white and Republican conservatism that exists that I'm like, wow, fa- parents, Great, great choice, great choice. White suburbia. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And um, so, no, I wouldn't say that my transition was hard, but I will say that going from one predominantly, like, white community to another, I, like, I could do the transition because I've lived it my whole life, but I'm exhausted, (laughs) you know? Like, Michelle is my only, like, I don't, I didn't have any brown friends back home mm. like b- back in Maryland and Michelle's really like one of few close brown friends that I have now and it's kind of a little sad because I don't know I kind of wish I had like a like a brown community just like something that I've lacked my entire life and I continue to lack it because I came to Bowdoin so I don't know. I will say that I am just a little exhausted always having to be different, you know, in so many different ways. Um, So the transition wasn't hard when I came here, but being here, it's gotten a little bit more hard and hard every single day. Yeah. I'm surprised how much I resonate with what you guys are saying, because I also agree coming in, I think the excitement and like the transition, like I'm a college girl now, like I think that was enough to carry me through a lot. Um, also, I do have the privilege of like having attended an American curriculum high school. Um, and also like the way I speak, I don't have a foreign sounding accent. So like I blend in easier than some other international students. But definitely I think over time it's gotten harder. Also, I feel like for both you guys and myself, like South Asian and like East Asian usually aren't underrepresented groups at college. Yeah. <laughs> like we are very much... <laughs> We're there. <laughs> we take over these institutions, yeah. these elite institutions. And it like I really don't think I expected that I was going to be the only Korean girl in my grade. Um, that's, in, that's insane. There's Korean-American boys in my grade, but I'm the only Korean person and I'm the only Korean or Korean-American girl. And like 
it is kind of exhausting to know like the number of people I can go to to relate with my culture is like on one hand. I can count on one hand. Coming in, did you know that the community was going to be very small and that you were going to have to kind of do with the very few close relationships or do you think that affected you at all? Didn't expect anything about the community. I don't know how to explain this, but Mm -hmm. I had never thought about diversity my entire life because Mm. I, you know, I've alluded to this before, lived in a homogenous community. I had never had to think about race uh, or religion. Yeah. Only thing I thought about in Pakistan was gender. And so that Mm. wasn't an intersectional identity. It was very linear, kind of very, I was in a box and I knew how to navigate those conversations Mm. with Pakistani people. But I was never thinking about, oh my God, why am I brown and this person looks like a different skin? They like has, you know, is of a different race. Mm. Um, so when I came to Bowdoin, and the time that I had spent in America prior to Bowdoin, I also didn't have any, because I went with a group of Pakistani people, came back with a group of Pakistani people, didn't interact with anyone outside of the group that I went to America with. Yeah. Um, so I came in very very naive i now realize um i had no understanding of race i had no understanding of how race worked in america specifically and how it Mm -hmm. was going to affect every conversation that i had for the next four years um and how just landing in america had like stamped me with identities that i wasn't even sure i had like a brown woman of color you know Uh muslim brown woman of color um so just I mean, I, I, did, I had no idea what to expect. I, I wasn't thinking, oh my God, I hope I have a South Asian community there because I wasn't mm. aware of what South Asian people were. I was just aware of Pakistani people. I was 18, so I, I, you know, it wasn't like I was completely um, unaware, but the, I needed to be in Brunswick, Maine for me to go to the extent that I did and for me to be able to be the person that I am today. But I, yeah, coming into it, I didn't expect anything because I didn't know that I had to expect stuff. Yeah, I I think the thing that's hard as well, because like I have been very aware of my like difference of others because I'm a Pakistani Muslim woman in the US. It's like so many intersectional identities that mm-hmm. it's like you're constantly jumbling them. But I think the thing that I did in high school to survive I ignored it a lot because if you're constantly aware of your differences, sometimes you feel suffocated, you know? So being in high school, like, I basically considered myself white because the other POCs in my grade, like, I was the lucky POC because I did well. I, like, my counselor supported me. I was high achieving, so that made me worthy you know, while the other POCs weren't seen as worthy because under the eyes of like my high school administration, because they didn't do as well. And they're like, well, they're going to go nowhere in life. Mm. And that's how they were treated. While they basically ignored the fact that I was brown, but still used me as a pivotal POC when it came to any pictures. Like I'm literally in the board of education in my school's like building because I was like a person of color taking computer science and at that point I hated computer science I was like who do you think you are making me the face of something I hate Uh um now I love it It actually (laughs) that's a that's a different conversation um but coming to Bowdoin you're constantly thrown with this question of identity and 
honestly, it's it, it can be overwhelming because it's almost that you like pe- like people who have intersectional identities or just identities that are different. It's almost like we're put onto display. So like these white people who haven't had the experience are like aware of like look who is around you, you know. But like none of those things actually apply to them. And this is like in reference to like our first year when we did that event where we had to stand up if like. Are you, do you identify as a Muslim? Do you identify as a woman? Do you identify as anything? And it's like, of course, like the cis white men, like not many of them stood for a lot of things that were like identity factors, Mm -hmm. not like experience factors. It's almost like you're bombarded with these questions of identity to once again appease the like white audience. And it's like, you've now put me into this like jumble of emotions thinking of like, I've been denying myself for so, like, I've been denying myself, you know, first of all, for the white audience, you know, so I can survive. And now once again, I'm being exposed for the white audience. And it's just exhausting, you know, it's like a constant show of like a circus show of like POCs. Yeah, sometimes it's like, we feel like we exist for the education of white peers, rather than this being an enriching and educational experience for ourselves and ourselves only. And... I don't know. I remember the first few days of orientation and one of those days, Michelle, you might remember this. I'm not sure if you remember this, but we were going down to some place on Main Street to get our eyebrows done because, of course, like we're brown. Eyebrows are our self-worth joke, of course, but still we were like, we got to get them done. And we were in a rush because, as you know, like orientation is like a, a bunch of events and like yeah. you don't have that much time. So we were like hurrying down Main Street and we tried our best to like say thank you as we were crossing like streets and stuff. But we like crossed the st- like one of the streets and this pickup truck, like I guess we forgot to like show a hand or like say like mouth thank you or something. And he rolls down his window and he, and he goes, in this country, we say thank you. And I was like, first of all. <laughs> In my head, I was like, no, you guys don't. I've lived here. <laughs> you guys never say thank you. But also, like, oh I was, like, God. shocked because up until this point, like, I'd only had really good interactions with, like, Mainers because, like, Mainers are known to be so kind, so sweet. And I was like, nope, that's the reality of the situation <sighs> that we're in. I felt bad for Mitchell. I was like, this is, this is, this, is, this happens. <laughs> this is pretty, yeah. this is kind of normal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, continuing on kind of this topic, how much do you think um, your intersectional identities affect how your this might the wording might seem a little dumb, but how much do you think being Muslim, being a, a brown woman of color, like affects how you're perceived on campus? Do you think some people reduce you down to your identities, or do you think some people overlook them too much? How, do you have any experiences with that? Well, one way it's affected my academic, you know, the academic side of things is that's entirely what my honors project is about. The whole thing (laughs) is about identity and having to be Pakistani and also somewhat American at the same time. Um, I would say I've been, I've, I've always surrounded, I've made a conscious effort of surrounding myself with people who understand where I'm coming from and what my identity is. So for example, if I don't drink, I've I've made sure to have those conversations my first year. Yeah. So I wouldn't have to have them again. And I just don't, and you know, this is partially because I I hate having to 
be in uncomfortable situations. I don't like confrontation at all. That's just me <laughs> as a person. Um, uh-huh. I haven't ever actively put myself in situations where I would have to be confronted with my identity in uncomfortable ways. For example, like if I'm at, if I go out to a party and I'm not drinking uh, and someone's like, oh, why are you not drinking? I would never want to be in a situation where I have to explain to them while they're drunk that, Mm -hmm. oh, I don't drink because, you know, religion. So I always will be like, I deflect uh, easier responses, responses that don't necessarily invite further reflection, like, oh, I'm allergic to alcohol or like, oh, it's just a personal (laughs) choice or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, And and for my close friends and, you know, my, my immediate friend group, they obviously know who I am and they understand where I'm coming from. Uh-huh. They know my choices and who I am as a person. So I've, I've, I have never had to actively think about any part of my identity when I'm with my close friends because we're just, you know, we're just one. Um, but so I think I did a lot of the working for that my first, like the first two years because I was mm-hmm. like, I just need to get this out of the way. And I'm the type of person who once I like find my core group of people, I tend to stick with them. And that's yeah. been very much been the case at Bowdoin. So I haven't ventured too much out of um, that group of people. And I will say a lot of the people that I interact with are uh, BIPOC students. So they don't, they never have to be, they never question my identity because they're mm-hmm. generally very respectful. Mm-hmm. And if I have had to interact with white people, I tend to minimize, I tend to not make uh-huh. it very apparent that I'm, a Muslim or that I am I mean it's apparent that I'm a woman of color but I, tend to, <laughs> yeah. I just stay away from those converse, conversations because I know it's going to be it's like inherently uncomfortable talking about identity and I don't want to be in a position where I'm having to educate them because I'm just tired mm. of doing that at this mm. point so yeah yeah I wouldn't say that I like I'm more of someone who will like I'm I'm pretty confrontational like if something happens I will like say it okay so like I have two examples so Michelle was a part of this um, international student exhibit thing when we were first years and it was just like a spotlight like it was a picture of them and then a little description of like what it means to them to be international or what it Mm -hmm. meant for like like about their home I think it might have been about their home and I remember I was going there and I was like there supporting Michelle. I was like taking pictures of her. I was like, stand next to yourself. You're adorable. And as I was looking at the exhibit, somebody came up to me. Actually, two people came up to me that exhibit and they were like, Anam, where's your picture? And I was like, I'm from Maryland. Oh. I don't like, I know people don't like Maryland, but like, it's not foreign. <laughs> like I, and I, it's also like kind of like, if you, like I felt like crap because I don't want to feel bad for being misidentified as a, international student Mm -hmm. because there's nothing wrong with being an international student but it's the fact that being like a person of color almost makes it difficult for them to understand that I was born and raised here Mm -hmm. so like that's the first experience I had and the other experience was like it was during voting season our junior year and there people like post up everywhere like what like hey have you voted like here's your voted I voted sticker and I was walking by and a student was working and like we was one of those Bowdoin acquaintances acquaintances like we knew each other but like not like enough you know and he stops me and he goes oh have you voted or have you registered to vote and I was like before he even let me he didn't even let me talk he was like oh wait you can't you're an international student I'm like no I already registered for Maryland So I would say like those are some interactions that I've had, but they don't dominate my experience because like Michelle has said, like 
I surround myself with people that make me feel comfortable. So like a fond experience I have is I also don't drink. So, but I still like to go to parties. I still like to socialize. And um, one time Nirhan and my roommate Allison threw a party and they tried to make me halal jello shots because like jello has gelatin, which is usually has animal preserves in it or like pork gelatin. And they, it was, it's so sad because they like, they failed and they were so sad about it because like they use like agar agar extract or something but I surround myself with people that try to make me feel included even if I'm not doing the things that they're doing you know they don't make me feel bad because I don't drink you know they don't make me feel bad like we're gonna get to the hookup question eventually too but it's who you who you surround yourself with but it's unfortunate that you need to surround yourself with people to make you so to make yourself feel comfortable at Bowdoin I will also say, though, I'm past, like, if someone asks me why I don't drink, I'm past being like, I'm not, I'm not required to make you comfortable with my answer. Um, so I'm, I'm, I don't know, I feel like I've reached a point in my life <laughs> um, where I'm very comfortable with my religion and like, who I am as a person and coming yeah. into myself in that way. And I, you know, America has been a big catalyst for that, because you don't think about these questions in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. But I just don't care anymore. I'm like, if you are uncomfortable, it's on you. But like, that's not on me. (laughs) I think also something that we've talked about a lot so far is having to like, I don't know, are people like the idea of like, are people aware of our religion? And we say it from the, the outsider context. But there's also I felt a lot of shame my first few years at Bowdoin within the Muslim community, you know, like if I wore something that was a little bit more revealing, I was like, I don't want this person to see because I don't want them to think that I'm a bad Muslim. And there's a lot of shame of myself, not even from them. Like I was just ashamed of myself within like the other Muslims on campus. I remember like for a while, I was scared of telling Michelle about like one of my first hookups because I was like, I don't want her to think that I'm a bad Muslim. I don't want her to not want to be friends with me because this is an act that would make that would like show me as like a bad Muslim or something like that, you know? And what I've learned like now, like now I'm very open and even being a part of like MSA, like I am one of the representatives of Islam on campus, right? I don't change myself, you know, but I'm also very true to myself when it comes to Islam, like Islam. And I'm sure this is also with other religions as well, but like Islam is between me and God and I don't use that as an excuse but I know that it's like my intention and I always try to have the purest intentions you know and I and if other people think are thinking negative things like only God can judge me only like Allah can can judge me and that's what matters to me and that's how I feel about other Muslims as well you know yeah um Obviously, I'm I'm not Muslim. I'm Christian, but I think being religious on this campus in general is really hard. Yeah. I like also had this like not a shame. Literally, Christian is probably the most like dominant <laughs> religion or like culturally as well on this campus, and I still feel weird mentioning that when it's not like prompted because it feels like that is immediately associated with like oh like you don't like to have fun or you're gonna judge me for my actions and like. Something Michelle and I have talked about in the past is how, like, coming to Bowdoin has changed and continues to change us. And I don't necessarily mean that we're abandoning our family's beliefs or the way we used to practice our religion. But like you mentioned, Anam, um, 
like we evolve in our personal values and the way we picture our future um, and the way we want to le- lead our lives and the way we want to um, practice our religion and what makes sense to us now. So how do you feel about coming into your own in an environment such as Bowdoin? I have a very different understanding of gender roles, sexuality, and sex um, since I've come to Bowdoin. And a lot of my Korean friends or family would say I've become super Americanized or that like some of my beliefs are less Christian or more like sinful than before. Um, and I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts or experiences on that. Um, yeah, I will say I feel closest to religion now than I ever have in my oh. life. And I needed to move away from home to be able to say that when you grow up in a Muslim country and you grow up around Islam, you're born into it. You never really find your own way to it. You're, it's fact, right? It's established that you will be a, a Muslim. Um, and so I, I, I've always been religious. I've always, you know, believed in religion and it's, it's, helped me through so many parts of my life but I needed to come to America and be on my own to really recognize why it was important and why Mm -hmm. I needed to be you know connected spiritually to God um and so that's definitely been if you ask me what part of my identity is the most important to me right now and it has been for the past four years it would be the fact that I'm a Muslim that's hands down that's how I identify myself is that I'm a Muslim Mm -hmm. um and in terms of how it's changed in Pakistan, culture and Islam are synonymous. You can't really separate them from each other. They are mm-hmm. very much hand in hand. And it's hard for me to take the values that I've learned in America, for example, gender roles and you know, independence and things that liberty, you know, and take that back to Pakistan and not have that be conflated with Americanism or Westernism. And that's something, you know, I'm still trying to figure out. I still am having those conversations when I go back home. But I do feel that when I land in Pakistan, I have to shed layers of myself that I have adopted in America. And gender is, it's such a complicated thing for me in Pakistan. I, I feel that's where the most discrimination comes from. Obviously, I've been immensely, immensely privileged. Uh, my parents are kind, amazing, wonderful people who have supported me in everything that I've ever done. The fact that I'm here in America uh, yeah. and was the first person in my family to go abroad and study says a lot about their ideology and like the type of people that they are. Mm-hmm. That's not the case for every Pakistani girl. And so, you know, I, rec- I acknowledge and recognize my privilege in that. That being said, I have now had a vocabulary and identity in America that I don't get to have in Pakistan. Like, I didn't know how to talk about gender in Pakistan. Yeah. I know that these things were happening to people where people were like, you have to serve to the guests and your brother doesn't have to do that. And I knew that was wrong, but I didn't know why because I didn't know how to talk about um, gender. Now that I have the vocabulary to do so, I go back and there's just such a disconnect. And my life in Pakistan and my life in America will always inherently be different. Uh-huh. I don't know how to make them reconcile. Um, and I've stopped trying to do so because I can be who I want to be in America and take parts of that with me to Pakistan and you know, vice versa. Um, but something I like have been thinking about recently, this came to me like probably like six months ago. Uh, there's no word for rape in Urdu. So that's my like 
my uh, mother language, right? So there's no word for rape or periods or breasts or progeny. Um, And, you know, when you, once you start to think about that and you reflect on that, you're like, okay, well, there's no vocabulary to talk about women's pain in Pakistan, in Urdu, which Mm -hmm. is what most people speak in Pakistan. Yeah. How do you reckon with, how do you, you know, then have a conversation about women that's not immediately resorting to English or immediately having you to be requiring you to be educated to a certain level. Mm -hmm. And I, this has come through in a lot of my writing. This was like my grad school application, essentially. Um, And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do everything that I can, like truly to me being successful would mean that I, I change Pakistan somewhat for women there right now, because it's a very, very, uh, grim state um for women who just want to be independent or who just even want to like want to be yeah just want to be just want to exist um and yeah so that america has definitely been the the biggest help in that is like it's made me realize who i am i don't unapologetically realize who i am i don't feel the need to go back to pakistan and have to if someone says something rude if some man or woman for that matter is being rude to me in Pakistan in terms of gender, I don't feel the need to shy away from having that conversation um, because I feel like I have a certain sort of authority now that I didn't before. And I think that note between culture and Islam is so important because Michelle says that like they go hand in hand and they do, but they should be separated, right? Like, like as a Muslim, like as an American Muslim, when I see the news and events about Islam that get treated as news in the mainstream media it bothers me that so many um issues like so many problems with islam are related to the religion when in reality they're problems of culture traditions politics and like super like superstitions of like either muslim majority region or when people bring those muslim majority thought and culture to western spaces and i think it would just be, it's just so unfair that Islam is consistently conflated with culture because so much of the culture that, like, pra- cultural practices isn't condoned by Islam. Like, banning, like, women from getting an education, like, that's not Islamic at all. Like, that is the complete opposite of what Islam preaches, you know? And Michelle, you can probably speak about this way better than I can, but it's so frustrating, because even our own parents can't divide Islam from culture. And they're the ones continuously like perpetuating it. Yeah, the I can speak like for hours about gender <laughs> in Pakistan and Islam. Um, but Islam is a very logical religion. Okay, so if something isn't making sense, it's on you. <laughs> if something isn't making sense and you are confused, that's on you because anything that is common sense, Islam is like all for. Why would you not want women to be educated? Why would you not want both of both sides of the population to be educated? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and I've been very, very, very blessed to have a family that um, is very understanding of that. And also now that I, you know, I've come into my identity as a woman and I go back to Pakistan and I have conversations with my parents where they're, where I think that they're being like slightly problematic. I have a conversation with them about, about it. Yeah. And they're always yeah. very open to changing, adapting their belief system to something that, that they have been raised to culturally do and is problematic. So they've been very open to change in that respect. I think also something Michelle and I were talking about the other day, um, 
is, you know, a lot of people take out certain like verses from the Quran and they're like, this is really messed up. Like, how can you guys follow religion that says something like this? We had this conversation too with this person named Ayman Ismail. He's a slate journalist the, this past Friday, a bunch of um, members of MSA. And it's so true. He was like, we tend to use other religions as a defense being like, well, have you read the Old Testament and the New Testament? Like there's some really messed up stuff in there. And like, that's like the continual bringing down of each other to have this some kind of equality like, oh, well, the, this Christian hegemonic society also like is based on these documents that are really messed up. Uh-huh. When in reality, what we should be doing is thinking about the context in which a lot of these old religious texts were written. Uh-huh. Religion, I mean, Islam is a very interpretive like religion. Like if there's something in the Quran that says something very outrageous, if people are doing that, that is a sin on themselves, not on like the religion, you know? And extremism exists, once again, in all religions. And it's just sad that it's always tied to Islam. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think something that the West, especially Western media, really lacks is the understanding that the same way Christians and um, Jewish people and Catholics can express, understand, and perform, no— Practice their religion. Practice, <laughs> practice their religion in a in a in a variety of ways. Like there's nothing different with Islam and the way that a lot of more oppressive cultural or like yeah. political practices are associated immediately with the religion and never seen as like a one specific instance is like very concerning for sure. So we're going to go to a much lighter end of the spectrum, which is going to be, I try not to talk about dating too, too much in every episode because I hate the way the idea of romance and male attention, I hate the amount of control it has on college women. But I am curious, um, when it comes to dating or hooking up, how much do you think about your identity as you go about that or as you don't go about that? Um, are you able to enjoy the scene for what it is at Bowdoin? Did you experience any letdowns or areas of disappointment? Um, I can speak briefly <laughs> because I don't have much to say. Um, I have not engaged in either the dating or the hookup culture at Bowdoin and um, religion has been probably the biggest part of that. Uh, and, all, all, you know, coming from Pakistan too, it, it's taboo to speak about relationships and, and uh, you know, dating. Uh, yeah. People usually will like date as in like get to know each other for the purpose of marriage. Uh-huh. Um, I came into Bowdoin not, not knowing that I wouldn't want to do that. And I've kind of straight stayed true to that uh purpose of mine um it bone is a very white space and there's not many options here where you would even potentially start to think about um you know someone who would be aware of all the cultural baggage that you're coming with um uh-huh. just men in general i just like, stay away from and no i mean this because i like i just there your culture is the biggest part of this because it's not I don't have like any male friends like I have you know casual male friends but I don't have like (laughs) strong male friendships because why would I want to (laughs) 
hate you so much. Okay, I guess I'll it's take over here. <laughs> I'll take over a little bit here. I, in high school, like, I didn't do absolutely anything. Not My parents weren't strict with me because they didn't have a need to be strict with me. Because I never really did anything. Never. Yeah, I never did anything bad. Um, and, like, my sister, she, like, had a lot of romantic endeavors when she wasn't in high school. And... It always kind of made me a little sad because I lived in a white space and I think a lot of it did att- like attribute to the fact that I was a woman of color. On top of that, like being plus size and so many other things as well, you know, and just being so different that I'm almost untouchable and not even like untouchable in the, in, the, in the actual physical sense, but like just untouchable. Like I don't even want to try to get to know this person because she seems too different. So, like, my romantic endeavors in high school, zero. And then I came to Bowdoin, and I started discovering, like, the hookup culture, because a lot of it is hookups. But something that I, like, want to highlight is I am a virgin and will continue to be a virgin until it's something that I don't want to do anymore. Like, I'm 21 years old, and I'm still a virgin, and a lot of that is attributed to my religion, you know? culture and religion you know because it's once again embedded Mm -hmm. it's at first like when I like when I was a first year or even a sophomore like when I had a hookup I was I didn't want to have sex because I was scared of like what would happen to me like what would my parents think not that I would ever hope that they would find out but now it's more like I don't want like I don't want that you know like that's something that there's something so personal about that experience that I do, I don't even want to like this idea of waiting for my husband. It's not even that, but waiting mm-hmm. for the person that I want to have that experience with, you know, and I want it to be a person that it's long term. And also in Islam, one of the greatest sins is to have like sex. And I am scared of that, you know, and I can't fully say that I'm not scared because like I do believe in heaven and hell. And I'm like trying to not go to hell, you know, <laughs> not that that determines it. It's it's not that because like God is so forgiving that it doesn't, that's not the determination, uh-huh. but it's also not something that I've truly desired. So in relation to being a Muslim, I don't feel like that has affected my ability to like look for romantic um, options on campus. Yeah. If, if I'm going to hook up with someone or, like, do anything with someone, I'm straightforward and, and I say, these are the ground rules. And if you're not okay with it, then it's okay. Let's just not even start anything, uh-huh. right? It's the fact that we go to a predominantly white campus. That's where being a woman For of sure. color comes into play. Yeah. Because not only do I not have the ideal body type, like, I don't have the, like, white complexion that is desired. And it's kind of sad because it's like okay well we have men of color on campus honestly we're not valued by them either like they don't see no they don't see because there's this continuous con like conquest of like being accepted by the white community and that also goes into like men of color i'm not trying to shit on men of color sorry um shirt on men men of color but like that is a thing right like that's genuinely a thing The only thing that I'll add is even though it is sometimes hard to feel valued, 
every person, almost, mm, almost every person that I've hooked up with this on this campus has made me feel valued, but they have all exclusively, except for the person that I'm currently dating, have been men of color. Right now I'm dating a like white man. It's not an experience I've ever had before. And it's, it's crazy. It's like genuinely, no, it's like, it's so weird. I'm like, and it's so funny because I sent Michelle this TikTok. Like people of color always have to feel like the need to rationalize why they're dating a white person. But uh-huh. I don't know if it's some somebody that makes me feel comfortable and makes me feel valued and doesn't ignore the fact that I'm a, a woman of color, Muslim, like how respectful he's been during Ramadan too, which is like, I know kind of like, you're dating someone during Ramadan. I know that just like sounds like, ugh, ugh, Anam, what are you doing? But he's been nothing but respectful of my boundaries. And uh-huh. I'm just super thankful for that. I know a lot of women of color on this campus. I've had countless conversations where they don't feel valued. And it's like, it's always like, it's okay. Once you leave Bowdoin, then I'm like sick of like being like, you have to wait. Cause honestly, I sometimes wish that I found like my Muslim man on this campus. So then I could just be like happily ever after. Like, cool, that's one thing off my checklist. Yeah. But that's not a reality for like a lot of people, you mm-hmm. know? I also definitely agree with the fact that like so many of our friends will just be like, Esther, it's just it's just that you're in Brunswick right now. It's just that <sighs> you're at Bowdoin. The moment you leave, you're gonna have countless options. And like thank you, but I'm also, like, really tired of, like, of hearing that and, like, having to put that off to the future only. Because, like, yeah, like, when I was young, I thought I was gonna, like, my parents met in college and they got married after college. I'm like, that's gonna happen for me. Mm, Probably not. But I also don't want to think, like, I'm doomed for connection or... Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's also, like, a really important point to make. A lot of women, whether they be women of color that are just, like, who have that idea of pretty privilege, right? But then, like, also, like, white women, they've, they, like, I've, like, had, like, slight microaggressions, you can almost call them, like, saying, like, oh, Anam, if anyone ever tells you that you're not beautiful, I'm like, pause, that's already you insinuating this idea that I don't think that I'm beautiful because of the way that I look. Even within the space of women, like microaggressions exist, but women think that they're uplifting each other when almost they're just reinforcing the same ideas that make them feel devalued mm-hmm. and insecure. Yeah, and the fact that we have to attach our value to male attention or I Mitchell don't doesn't. do that. I <laughs> Mitchell don't doesn't. Do that. I genuinely don't care. I'm past, I mean, I think I did for part of my life. Everyone does. Yeah. Um, everyone heterosexual does. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I, can't, I guess I've never wanted to actively be in a relationship. Like, I've, I've, I don't know. I'm, I know that that's mm-hmm. not the case for a lot of people. Uh-huh. But I genuinely don't feel the need or any see the need to have, like, a partner you know, in any sense of the word. I really don't, like, I've, I'm a very independent person. And when I actually start to think about, you know, settling down or being in a relationship, it, it's very suffocating to me because uh-huh. my uh, understanding of, of relationship is inherently tied with marriage because, you know, I'm Pakistani. Um, and I don't see myself getting married for like the ne- ever. <laughs> and if, my mom's not going to listen to this podcast. Um, Hot but- off the press. 
<laughs> but if I do, I don't see it being for the next several years. Yeah. So yeah, I would very much like to just exist as my own person without having to bring anyone else into that equation and compromise parts of myself. Michelle and I are so different. It's so funny. <laughs> I'm like, I'm ready to get married like within it's within the next two years. And not because yeah. of this like imposition of marriage through culture. It's just like, I'm ready to like not have to like have to like search and browse. Like I don't want any, like I'm exhausted, you know? We'll try to wrap it up. Um, so you can approach this question any way you want. It can be like a positive answer or a negative answer or an in-between. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about if I would recommend Bowdoin to a friend, especially people who are similar to me, uh, as I am an international Asian student. One part of me really wants more Asian students to come to Bowdoin, and another part of me is like, I hope they go somewhere else with a better support system where they don't have to think about their identity all the time. So have you thought about this? Um, what do you think now that you're almost nearing your graduation? <laughs> uh, this is an interesting question. <laughs> First of all, I can't wait to graduate. Like, I'm so tired. Um, <sighs> And I, th I always thought that when senior year would come around, I would be extremely nostalgic and, yeah, uh, you know, all, already missing Bowdoin. Um, but that's not the case at all. I don't know if it's the pandemic or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how our senior year has played out in a very yeah. unusual way. Um, or the fact that I'm just like very, very burnt out. But I don't see myself uh, reminiscing at all um so that being said i think a lot of that has to do with how Bowdoin has handled certain um situations in the past few months and uh, you know specifically race diversity and equity initiatives and how everything that they've been doing feels very performative and the more you start mm -hmm. to know the institution the more you start to unpack how and why it's so wrong yeah. um and how they don't really care about their students of color. That's, I really, really have come to believe that in the last year. Um, and spe especially international students. Esther, you will know this. Um, yes, unfortunately. <laughs> having said that, though, Bowdoin has given me myself. I've talked about this the entire podcast. It's given me who I am as a, my, you know, in terms of my identity. It's given me the vocabulary to talk about my identity. It's given me a voice that I didn't have when I was in Pakistan. I am such an such a different person now than I was when yeah. I, you know, first set foot on Bowdoin's campus. So I would I would love for women specifically international women who come from similar background sim a similar background as me to be able to come to a place like this and, and have the same experience. But I know that so much of my experience has been shaped by the people that I've found. Yeah. And I think I've, you, you know, that's been a unique situation because I know a lot of people, especially people of color, don't instantly find their communities at, as, as, at a place as white as this. Uh, so yes and no, like I know the challenges that come with it, but I also want voted to be more inclusive and have more yeah. international students and have more BIPOC students. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's not going to be easy. It wasn't easy for me or Anam, uh, and it won't be for them either. 
but I guess there can be rewards in the struggle. I tend to, to stay away from like inspirational rhetoric uh-huh. because it's, it's very tiring and exhausting that we have yeah. to continually, um, you know, struggle to get to reward. But it's for me, like personally, you know, and I can say this because it's been four years, I wouldn't have gone to a place other than Bowdoin because um, it's been so integral yeah. in the formation of who I am now. So yeah, do with that what you will. Yeah. Before I pass it on to Anam, I'll just add a little bit on that note of being international. Um, this semester, I it's my, the first time I've go, been going through the the work authorization process because last summer due to the pandemic, there was no like, am I going to intern or not? Um, and I realized like how much Bowdoin lacks in its support for international students. Like I didn't know the process, the timelines. I didn't know anything until one day I was like, I should probably look that up. And I started looking that up and I realized I was behind. And literally like, if you look up like internship, like, authorization like form 170 1767 whatever like you there's countless websites from like random ass universities like that are probably whiter than us that are probably even less diverse than us and they still have a lot more information a lot more support and I've been really like realizing the limitations of Bowdoin and um in that way but also at the same time, on a similar um, note to what Michelle said, the fact that I'm able to criticize Bowdoin and where it fails its students, that means that Bowdoin is doing its job. It taught me how to think critically. It taught me like, how to think of myself in a larger context where I am amidst social structures and stuff like that. So I, I know that I wouldn't be able to have the criticism that I have if it weren't for the Bowdoin education. Now that I'm in the middle of my Bowdoin experience after two years, like I don't have a straight answer to this question, but I have a lot of thoughts and emotions, clearly. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so would you recommend Bowdoin to another international Asian student? Yeah, my sister is a senior in high school and she applied here. She's waitlisted here. Okay. Um, one part of me is like, I really hope she comes. That'd be yeah. so fun. Um, and another part of me is like, she should go somewhere else. Like, it's exhausting and it's so hard sometimes. And I feel like there, I don't know if another top 20 American institution is going to be any different, but sometimes I'm like, I, I wonder if me wanting her here is a selfish thing. Like, I want another yeah. support system and but we'll see (laughs) yeah um it is a really um hard question on I like I had so many thoughts but then I was engaged in your answer let me gather myself real quick okay I am thankful to be at Bowdoin because never had I ever thought that I would be leaving college debt-free like I have lived below the poverty line my entire life and my parents to this day struggle to like like pay rent, like pay bills. And my parents came to the US like when they were 20 years old. Like I'm 21, you know, I couldn't Could you imagine oh right God. now like immigrating uprooting yourself? Yeah, and with absolutely zero support, you know? And 
one of my goals in life is to just repay them for everything. And it is not like actually give them money, but give them the experience and the luxury of not having to work. And mm-hmm. I don't know if I would be able to do that if I hadn't gone to Bowdoin, you know, because mm-hmm. like Bowdoin pushes you, but it also supports you at the same time. And Michelle's right. Like when it came, when it comes to being a person of color, when it comes to being an international student, when it comes to like true hard, like identity, like identities like that, they lack. But when I was struggling, my first like academically struggling, because I came from a very like academically unchallenging like high school. And then I was thrown into this sphere of people Mm -hmm. that are just so, so freaking smart. Right. And I came from being like the top of my class to now being average, maybe like honestly below average at times. And if I had gone anywhere else, like anywhere that was as challenging as Bowdoin, because it is a challenging school and we forget we forget that sometimes just because it's not an Ivy League. It's on the, it's almost on the same level. I don't know if I would have survived anywhere else. And for that, like I'm leaving college with like a very good job and I'll be able to help my parents. And that was my number one goal leaving college, you know? So for that, I am thankful. But at the same time, I am not scared to shit on the institution that gave me my future. You know, it is, that is where like, not not to get political on here, but this is where Andrew Yang fails to be a good politician and almost fails to be a good human because he continuously like supports the white institutions that gave him opportunity. But you should be able to be critical of these institutions. And I am yeah, very We don't critical. owe them blind allegiance. No, because we are a we are helping them. When I came for the Bowdoin experience, they on the top of my flight, because they paid for my flight here, right? It said multicultural recruitment. Like they're recruiting me not only for my intelligence, but for all the boxes that I check. And that's just a reality. I'm sorry, this is like going around the question. If I would recommend Bowdoin to somebody with any part of my identity, I have already dealt with this because I went to a predominantly white high school. I was the poor person of color, right? And here, once again, I'm the poor person of color. If you are strong enough to get through that, and you will be exhausted and you will be pummeled every single day, if you can get through that, then come to Bowdoin. And I can't say for sure because I don't know any other college experience except Bowdoin, but you won't be constantly questioned about your identity if you were to go to like NYU, for example, right? If you were to go to Columbia, that's way more diverse than um, Bowdoin is. So in a way, if you're sick of being exhausted, and I can't express how exhausted I am, and people don't understand that's not exhaustion in terms of getting sleep, it's exhaustion in every other facet. The never-ending news headlines, I know that bad stuff has been happening since the beginning of time, but this semester and this year, I have just been so hyper-aware of things that I can't stop thinking about it, you know? So the exhaustion isn't just in the personal life, but with having to reconcile with what's going on in the world. And being on Bowdoin and having a lack of support structure that can be there for you, that it can make you feel safe and comfortable. Because, like, 
I've had like a hate accident, like incident happen to me. And even if it didn't end up being a Bowdoin student, the fact that I still felt unsafe on this campus speaks volumes about how students of color or like Muslims or like people of different religious groups feel on this campus. Mm-hmm. So would I recommend Bowdoin? I was just going to say places like these were not made for people like us, right? Yeah. The fact, the very fact that we're here is almost an act of protest. Um, mm-hmm. And to what you were saying, Anam, about like, you know, going through Bowdoin and still wanting to criticize it, you can love places and criticize them. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a, like a deeper love than almost being like blind to mm-hmm. all the inequities and, you know, all the problems that are prevalent for students of color. And in terms of the opportunities that Bowdoin has given me, I'm going to go to an Ivy League school after this. It's That wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been here you know like that I never saw that path for myself and I I wouldn't even have pictured any future for myself where I did all the things that I've been able to do at Bowdoin like write an honors project that's so so deeply about Pakistan and Uh a Muslim woman I did this these sorts of opportunities would not have been available to me in Pakistan so I've been able to grow academically and personally almost like I like infinitely like I don't I'm not at all the person that I was four years ago before I came here And I am and always will be grateful to Bowdoin for that. And, um, you know, I always say this because I, I, it's different for me. I'm not American. The fact that I'm able to be here and complain is a luxury. I'm very, very, very grateful that I had yes. this experience. It changed me and it will continue to change me as I go, you know, about in my life, whatever I end up doing. Yeah. Um, it helped me find my passions. It helped me find who I was as a person and refine all those things into uh, something that can, you know, something that's mature. I feel like I'm a way more of a mature person now than mm-hmm. I was when I came here. Yeah. Um, and all of that has been because of the people that I've met here and the conversations that I've had here, difficult yeah. as they have been um, and uncomfortable as they have been. But it does have its rewards. So that's what I'll say. I think that's that's a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much again to Anam and Michelle for joining me on the podcast. I really wanted to cover this topic personally because um, I grew up um, next to South Asian and um, Middle Eastern women. At Bowdoin, they write my name and they write United Arab Emirates. So it's weird to represent a region that I don't have significant like ethnic or religious ties to. So I'm really glad I got to showcase your voices on this platform. Um, And to our listeners, I hope that was interesting and educational for you. To anyone listening who is observing the month of Ramadan, Ramadan Kareem. We will be back next week with more content. And until then, keep up with us on Instagram at StrippedPairPod. Bye! Bye! (laughs)